Hello, sports fans, and welcome to Let Me Speak, the show that shares sports' biggest headlines explained, uninterrupted, and maybe a little audacious. I'm Joe Braverman, and today's topics we'll be discussing are a few games into the conference semifinals, have the NBA title favorites changed, plus, inching closer to the NHL's Final Four, who's the favorite to win the Stanley Cup, and Resetting the AFC after the trade of Julio Jones. It's episode 27 of Let Me Speak, and it starts right now. Thursday, June 10th, 2021, the 27th edition of Let Me Speak. Thank you very much for tuning in. Hope all of y'all are staying cool out there. We're just coming off a big heat wave, not only here in Massachusetts, but basically all along the East Coast. It's cooling off a little bit. Hopefully the sun will stay out. We had to put in some air conditioners because let me tell you, it was a scorcher. It was a scorcher. Things got to cool down. But glad we're on the other side of it now. We're only in the month of June and we're already seeing 90 degrees. I mean, I would have expected this come July 4th, or once we hit July, not in June. But that's not the only thing that's heating up. It's obviously the NBA playoffs that are heating up. We're already down to the final eight teams vying for the NBA championship. We know there are going to be two new teams in the NBA finals with the elimination of the Miami Heat. And the defending champion Los Angeles Lakers, which is a whole different topic we could get into in a future episode. But let's talk about the teams and the series that are going on right now. Mainly starting in the Eastern Conference with the top-seeded 76ers and the fifth-ranked Atlanta Hawks. They're tied right now at 1-1. to Game 3 coming up tonight. And I gotta tell you, I am a little bit, a little bit surprised to see Philadelphia struggle with a team like Atlanta. I mean, I, I make a good comparison for Atlanta being last year's Miami Heat because it's a lot of young, inexperienced players mixed with some veterans, and they know how to shoot, which we'll get into a little bit. But let's get into the Philadelphia side of it. Really, this is just all about defending. For the 76ers. I think they have to get so much better. On the perimeter. Because we already know. What they have down low. They have Joel Embiid. They have Ben Simmons. They have Tobias Harris. We know that. What can they do on the perimeter. You know with guys like Seth Curry. With Danny Green. With Matisse Thibel. They have a lot of holes. In that perimeter defense. Which is allowing so many shooters. On Atlanta to get free and keep in mind that three-point shooting for the Hawks has been unreal over the first two games they've shot nearly 40 percent from three 31 of 77 which is funny because the big question for Philly was the health of the NBA MVP runner-up Joel Embiid because you know he's got that torn right meniscus but he's still putting up monster numbers 39 points in game one 40 points in game two I mean, that offense is fine, but they're going to have to do a little bit more defensively because we know Tobias Harris is that second option on offense. We know Ben Simmons is that all-around point guard. We know they have the shooters, but their defense has to get better because they're doing a great job taking away the middle. They're taking away the inside game. They're not letting Clint Capella go all over the place inside but it's their perimeter defense. If they take away the shot, take away the three-point shooting, make them drive to the basket because you've got a monster in Joel Embiid, one of the best two-way players when he's healthy. When he's healthy. Because Embiid is great down low, not only on offense and on defense. You put him up with a guy like John Collins, make him go in the post, he's done. As Shaquille O'Neal likes to say, barbecue chicken. That's that's what it is, basically, for Philadelphia. Because they're shooting just fine. I mean, 
they're over 50% in the field goal from both games, first two games. But Atlanta's playing just as better, shooting 51% and then 46%. So both offenses are fine, but it's going to be the better defensive team who comes out of this game. But like I said, Atlanta is pretty much this year's version of last year's Heat, the Miami Heat from the bubble. It's a lot of young, inexperienced guys. You look at Miami. They have a bunch of young guys last year, from Duncan Robinson to Tyler Hero to Kendrick Nunn. Atlanta's got that same thing. Trey Young, Kevin Herter, John Collins, Bogdan Bogdanovich. Keep in mind, this is his fourth year in the league, but his first time in the playoffs because God knows Sacramento's made the playoffs recently. But Trey Young is obviously that superstar. He's the engine of that Hawks team, and he's going to do much better than 21 points that he scored in Game 2. We obviously know that was a loss. Philadelphia sort of came out and set the tone early. But Trey Young is going to have to score much more. What I do like seeing from Atlanta is Danilo Gallinari and Kevin Herter coming off the bench. Because, I mean, look at what they did in Game 2. 21 for Gallo and 20 points for Herter off the bench. I think that's exactly the spark you're kind of looking for. I don't see that when I look at Philadelphia. They don't have sort of that that jolt on offense coming off of the bench. And keep in mind, Atlanta also has Lou Williams, who I've raved about in recent weeks. I don't think Philadelphia has that sort of spark plug to really get that offense going. But... I still think Philadelphia will come out of this series. I still like the 76ers to eventually get themselves together. Maybe take this in six games, I would say. But I think Philly does have a lot of questions. I think they will be able to stop Atlanta. I think they'll be able to do it. I know it's tied 1-1. Game 3, very decisive tonight in Atlanta. You know, some could argue that whoever wins this is going to win the series. That could be the argument. Because if Atlanta wins this, then all the momentum heads to their side. And they have another game at home where they can take a commanding 3-1 to lead. But the perimeter defense of Atlanta, or of Philly, excuse me, the perimeter defense of Philadelphia, I think does improve a little bit. I think their shooting gets a little bit better. I think Ben Simmons comes alive for a couple of games. I do think they get out of this series and head to the Eastern Conference Finals. But... I wouldn't put my money on them in the NBA Finals because my questions are being answered in the other series in the East. That's the Nets and the Bucks, with Brooklyn leading Milwaukee 2 to nothing, Game 3 tonight for those two teams. And honestly, like I've been the biggest skeptic of Brooklyn so far, but I think, you know, I'm I'm changing my title pick, especially seeing the 76ers in the Atlanta series. I think Brooklyn, even without James Harden, is just more solid right now. They know what they are. And I think Philadelphia is just too inconsistent. I don't think even if they get out of the series and play Brooklyn or Milwaukee that they'll be consistent enough to hold down either of these two teams. But going into the Brooklyn-Milwaukee series... Even without James Harden, Brooklyn has been dominating. Absolutely dominating. I mean, look at the three-pointers here. That they are on basically different ends of the spectrum. Brooklyn shooting 44.5% over their first two games. And Milwaukee shooting barely 24.5%. Alright? So, I think that's sort of the identity of the Nets. is just they're a strong offense and... You know, you're going to have to have an offense that matches up with them. And what's kind of sad is that, you know, I think Milwaukee, they have the tools to be able to beat Brooklyn. Because, you know, when you look at that offense, the way Brooklyn moves, they have great ball movement. Their offense basically makes defenders look like child's play. But look at on the other side. Milwaukee has size. They have Brooke Lopez. They have the Greek Freak. They have Bobby Portis. They have so much more toughness than what Brooklyn has inside. Like, I would choose those three guys over Blake Griffin on defense any other day. And look at the paint. Points in the paint from the first two games. 
124 to 86 on points in the paint. Milwaukee has that advantage. But here they are continuing to chuck up threes with Bryn Forbes and Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton. All right? I don't care if you have to do it 150 times in the game. If you have that clear advantage, you keep doing it. Coach Bud has to lean on their size advantage. All right? And this could be more pick and roll with Brooke Lopez. Increasing the pace on fast break. I mean, Giannis scoring much more than 18 points in game two. All right? They don't call him the Greek freak for no reason. He has the size and the length to be able to dominate Brooklyn inside, and they're not doing that. They have to do that 150 times. If they have to go to it on every single possession, that's when the threes open up. If you lean on your size inside, then you have a chance. And that's why I'm just I'm more disappointed in Milwaukee than impressed with Brooklyn. Because, yeah, we know Brooklyn can shoot. They can shoot it outside, but they don't have an inside game. They don't have an inside game. Blake Griffin is their center, is their starting center. The guy you're asking to be your rim protector. You're telling me he can protect against Brooke Lopez, against Giannis? I don't think so. All right, so this is all on Milwaukee. Like, I don't even care if they win tonight. If they can, I'll tell you this, if they can tie the series up at 2-2, two to two, then I will give them a chance. But if Brooklyn even gets one game in these next two, then I say it's over. If they win tonight, it's over. I'm going to say it's absolutely over. They'll be on their way to the finals. I'm totally going to go past the conference finals. I'll say they get to the NBA championship, and they'll represent the East. That's how I say if Brooklyn wins tonight. But only if Milwaukee wins their next two games at home, then I will give them a puncher's chance to beat Brooklyn in this series. I still think the Nets are going to come out of this regardless. But... I'll still hold out hope for a silver lining for Giannis and the Milwaukee Bucks. Now, over in the Western Conference, we have Game 2 tonight between the Jazz and the Clippers. Utah winning 112-109 this past Tuesday. Obviously having a huge rally down early on by, I want to say it was about 15 points or so in that first quarter and in that first half. Utah using Donovan Mitchell a superstar to be soon, but he's going to be the best player on the floor. That's what it is for Utah. He's got to be that best player on the floor. 45 points on over 50% from the field goal range, 6 of 15 from 3, 7 of 8 from the free throw line. When you have a team that has both Kawhi Leonard and Paul George on it on the other side, your superstar has to be the best player on the floor, and that's what he was in game one, and that's what he's going to have to be in the remaining part of this series. That's what I think for Utah. If Donovan Mitchell can be a bigger superstar and have more impact on the floor than Kawhi Leonard, who's probably the best two-way player in the league right now, and Paul George, who still can be an offensive juggernaut even if he gets ridiculed for calling himself playoff P. If Donovan Mitchell is better than those two, then Utah will firmly have a grasp on this series. But, I mean, overall, even with Donovan Mitchell, I think the size of Utah is just overpowering the Clippers. Remember, L.A. doesn't have Serge Ibaka. And their starting lineup for L.A., I want to say it was Leonard, Paul George, Reggie Jackson, Marcus Morris, and Nicholas Batum. All right? That, that, there's no center right there. Your center is Marcus Morris, and he's six foot eight. All right? Look at what the size the Jazz have. Rudy Gobert, Royce O'Neal, Derek Favors. Not only do they have great size and defense, but they're great rebounders. L.A. just doesn't have that same size. They don't. But I think the biggest difference for Utah in that they take control of the series versus the Clippers is Jordan Clarkson, the sixth man of the year. He's that offensive spark off the bench that the Clippers don't have. I mean... L.A. tried it with Luke Kennard. He had 18 points, 7-9 shooting in Game 1. He's not the same guy that Jordan Clarkson is. Clarkson is just an offensive scoring machine. And I trust him 
off the bench with that second unit. And keep in mind, this is also a Utah team without their starting point guard, Mike Conley. Once Mike Conley comes back in, this will solidify this team. And that's why I trust Utah to come out of this series. I think they do come out of this series against L.A. I think just Kawhi and Paul George, they're too inconsistent to really trust during a best-of-seven series because you'll see it in the last couple of games, in Game 6 and Game 7 versus Dallas, where they both show up and put up like 30 and 40 points or something like that. And then they disappear and basically put up the same numbers as their other players, like 23 and 20 or something like that. Well, that's why I would lean on Utah in this series. But in the other series that had Game 2 last night, Phoenix Suns, Denver Nuggets, Suns obliterating the Nuggets up 2 to nothing. I mean, talk about playing great on both ends of the floor. I mean, limiting the new NBA MVP in Nikola Jokic is just showing the offensive hole that Denver has with the absence of Jamal Murray, obviously, with that torn ACL. But, I mean, Phoenix, man, the big difference has been CP3. Chris Paul is playing like Chris Paul again. It's almost like going back in the time machine, going back 10 years to when he became a superstar. I mean, 21 points, 10 assists, 1 turnover in Game 1. Follow that up with 17 points and 15 assists. And also keep in mind, 0 turnovers in Game 2. Chris Paul is going to be the reason that this Phoenix team goes to the NBA Finals. That's what I think. If they go to the NBA Finals, it's going to be because Chris Paul plays like Chris Paul. And not only that, but look at DeAndre Ayton down low. Yes, he's not getting as many rebounds as the Joker, but he's hanging with them. He's being that presence down low to really take away Jokic and take away some of that game, you know. We're seeing the Joker put up triple doubles in games he dominates. And he's not dominating in this. Why? Because he's got DeAndre Ayton defending him. That's the biggest difference right now. But I will say, I won't count out Denver just yet. Because remember what happened after game five, game four, I believe, during that Portland series. Head coach Mike Malone basically called out his team for being soft. After last night, he said this team quit. So he's that kind of coach. He'll call out his team, and that'll sort of be a spark. You know, does that happen in this series? We don't know. We'll have to see what happens in Game 3 in Denver in the next couple of days. Me personally, I don't think Denver has a chance to come back in this one. I'll take Phoenix to come out of this series because I just think, you know, not only do you have Devin Booker on offense, you have Chris Paul at the helm, DeAndre Ayton down low, but how about... Mikhail Bridges putting up a 20-point night. I mentioned a couple weeks ago, Cameron Payne off the bench. I mean, I like Phoenix. I really do. You know, they were so underrated. People really didn't believe in them because they were so young. But like I said, Devin Booker's a spotlight guy. DeAndre Ayton, he knows his role. Chris Ball, he's the veteran. This team is so well put together. And I ultimately think they're going to get out of this series. And... You know, depending on what happens with Utah, I would kind of lean their way to head to the NBA championship just because of how well they're put together. But there's still plenty of time before that. We're only two games into the conference semifinals. There are plenty of things that could change from the final eight teams in the NBA playoffs. And of course, like I say every single week, the NBA aren't the only league that's got playoffs going on. Talk about what's going on in the NHL. We've got a bunch of what I would call Cinderella teams going up against a couple of favorites. Second round is coming to an end. Getting close to the semifinals. Everything is going to wrap up this weekend. We'll find out the NHL's Final Four this weekend. So far, we have three of the four teams We could even find out the fourth and final team after tonight's game. Obviously, tonight we record on a Thursday. So tonight is game six between the Golden Knights and the Avalanche in 
Vegas. And let's get right into that series because that's the only series that's still remaining right now after last night, which we'll get into a little bit later. But I think the biggest difference right now is Vegas's Game 5 win in Denver. I really think that sealed it right there. I mean, you look at what happened in the first two games in Denver. Colorado absolutely obliterating the Golden Knights 7-1. to Obviously, they didn't have Marc-Andre Fleury. And then Game 2, they win it in overtime. And then after that, something turned on with this Vegas team. And they're just playing so much better defensively. They're limiting such a high-powered offense that the Avalanche have. And there are two players for Vegas that I'm really looking at. It's got to be Jonathan Marchessault. I mean, scoring in the last three games, including a Game 4 hat trick, I think he has been that spark along with Mark Stone. They're on offense, just being at the right place and the right time. This Vegas team, I mean, Colorado were one of the best teams offensively in terms of goal scoring, putting up shots, pretty much up until this series. And look at what Vegas is doing to them. You know, it's almost like they're looking pedestrian. I know a couple games went to overtime, but, I mean, a 5-1 victory in that game four, Vegas has been playing great, and Jonathan Marchessault is helping with that scoring. But the player who's more important than him, I would say, obviously, is Marc-Andre Fleury in net. I mean, he is proving his worth. Remember, he missed game one, and we clearly saw the effect. Seven goals for Colorado. Seven. And you take away that game, Vegas might have this thing wrapped up. Just because Flurry wasn't in net. But since Flurry has been in net, he's got a 914 save percentage. Two goals allowed per game, including 1.67 in the last three games, which, by the way, have all been victories for the Vegas Golden Knights. But that's one end of the ice. The other end of the ice is the avalanche. And like I said, the offense, for such a high-powered offense that they were all year, they've looked pedestrian, especially Nate McKinnon. I mean, Nathan McKinnon only has one point in these last four games. Take away game one, he's only got one point, no goals on 12 shots in the last four games. And I think that's due to Vegas doing a great job sort of limiting him offensively, taking away the lines, getting two bodies, or when you go on those breakaways, you get one, and then you have one shadowing, really just taking away the lanes and making other guys basically beat you for the avalanche. That's really all it is that Vegas is doing. They're limiting McKinnon and forcing the others to really get going, and that is the biggest difference right now, I would say, is that... Marc-Andre Fleury playing great in net, and Nathan McKinnon has just disappeared. If the Avalanche are going to get back into the series, he has to score. And I, I don't mean score in points. I mean score goals. Score goals, all right? He was one of the top goal scorers all year long. He needs to step up if the Avalanche have a chance. If you're asking me, I think I'll take Vegas tonight. I think by the time this episode airs and drops... Tomorrow, we will know that the Vegas Golden Knights will make the Final Four and they'll play what I consider the Cinderella team of the NHL and the most shocking team to make it this far, and that's the Montreal Canadiens. I mean, the Canadiens sweeping the Winnipeg Jets? A sweep? Are you kidding me? This is after a 3-1 comeback against Toronto in the previous series. And you have to look at this Montreal team statistically. And I say this because I know I've got a friend who's a big Canadians fan. Shout out Matt Norton. The Canadians statistically are the weakest playoff team from the field of 16. From the field of 16 that were fielded, they had the lowest point total out of all the teams. 59 points. The fewest among all the teams that qualified for the playoffs. And here they are, part of the final four. Part of the final four. And to me, this is just a well-disciplined team. It's There aren't a ton of guys that will flash out statistically, but they're just a well-disciplined team. Look at the numbers. 
during this Winnipeg series. During the sweep, they were 8-for-8 on the penalty kill. 8-for-8. Perfection on the penalty kill. And not only that, but you got a tremendous veteran in net, Carey Price. I mean, you got to remember how long this guy's been in the league. His first year was 2007, 2007, 2008. And he is showing how great he has been since then. Yeah, there have been some tough Canadians teams in the past. But if this team has any success, it's because of Carey Price in the net. 2.18 goals allowed average in this series, which is the best among remaining teams. The best. And not only that, but a 942 save percentage in this series. Carey Price will be the reason this Canadian team goes far. I think they'll have a much, much bigger test. Because you got to remember, Winnipeg were the number three team who upset the Oilers. So this is probably going to be the best offense that they have faced so far in this playoffs. I know people who are fans of Toronto will argue that you didn't have John Tavares. So that offense was limited. But this Vegas offense is going to be the best if they come out of this. Even regardless of if the Avalanche come back. I think this is going to be the best offense Montreal faces. I think the run does come to an end. It's a great story. It's the NHL Cinderella for 2021. But, you know, I think the road ends in the Final Four. And I think the Canadians are going to get beaten by either the Golden Knights or the Avalanche. But, hey, I love the run. I love the Cinderella run. Statistically, the worst team in the playoffs making it to the Final Four. Props to Montreal for that. But another team who's qualified for the Final Four are the defending champs from 2020, the Tampa Bay Lightning. They beat the Carolina Hurricanes in that series in five games, 4-1. to one, And honestly, it looked like it was just no match. No match for the Lightning. I know there were a lot of close games, but it just never really felt like they were in any danger despite losing in Game 3. I mean, they should be, in my eyes, the Stanley Cup favorites. That's what I say. Because you have Andre Vasilevsky in net playing like an MVP. And when he's not playing like an MVP, you've got a ton of weapons. Stamkos, Point, Kucherov. They pick up the slack on offense. You know, look at what happened in Game 4 when it was 6-4. to Vasilevsky was off that night. But who's coming through? Those guys that I just mentioned in that entire offense in general. That's why I think I'd put my money on the Lightning regardless of what happens. Of what happens. I would put my money on the Lightning to repeat. They've got such a great... They're just well put all around. I keep saying it week after week after week. Is that they're just a well put together team. And they have a ton of guys returning from last year's team. From last year's Stanley Cup team. And I think it's definitely going to be a test with the team that they're going to face. But even regardless of what happens in the West, I would bet money. If I'm a gambling man, if I had to put money on someone to win the Stanley Cup, I would put it on the Tampa Bay Lightning. Because they have just been the most consistent team all throughout the entire playoffs. The entire playoffs, they've just been so consistent, so dominant. Also, keep in mind, so dominant. And... I I would just go with the Lightning. That That's me. That's my armchair hockey fan's opinion, saying Tampa should be the favorites for the Stanley Cup. I mean, for Tampa, you have to look at what happened in this series. I mean, you cannot fall behind if you were Carolina, or anyone for that matter, and commit penalties. I mean, look at how dominant they were in the power play versus Carolina. 7 of 16, nearly a 44% success rate. So that's the only thing. You have to play a flawless game to beat this Tampa team. You have to play a flawless game. You can't commit any penalties. You have to keep it even strength 5-on-5. Five five. And even with then, it gets tough to defend. So that's why I would say Tampa are my Stanley Cup favorites. But the question is, what happens in the series up next where they play the team who qualified just last night, the New York Islanders, who beat the Boston Bruins in Game 6 Pretty decisively, I would say. Winning the series in six games. 
heading to the Final Four for the second year in a row, and they get a shot at redemption against the Tampa Bay Lightning. Now, we'll talk about the Boston side of things in our Let's Get Local segment from this series, but let's look at what the Islanders did in this series. They were aggressive, especially when you look at last night's game. You could just tell that they knew this series was in their hands. I mean, they had Boston on their heels pretty much since that game two win where they won in overtime, even if it was a turnover or something like that. I'd even say in game three that even though they lost that game, they were in control and they felt like they had all the momentum. Why? Because they played aggressive. If you watch that game six, they were just very aggressive. They had a strong blue line D. They weren't allowing a high-powered offense like Boston to get any zone time, any zone time, forcing the mistakes and forcing the turnovers. They are probably, in my eyes, the most physical team in this playoffs. And it's that physicality that led to a bunch of those Boston turnovers, allowed those goals, especially last night by Brock Nelson. I think this is a team that has basically flown under the radar all season long. Remember, this is the number four seed from the Eastern Division. All right? This is the number four team. They flew under the radar so much, and that shows how tight that Eastern Division was, is that many people were picking the Bruins or the Caps or the Penguins. Everyone forgot about the Islanders, and here they are in the Stanley Cup's Final Four. Now, it's going to be much tougher. I think this Tampa offense feels a little bit more put together than the Bruins because obviously the Bruins, they had their perfection line. Then they had Taylor Hall in the second line, but after that it kind of fizzled out a little bit. This is a Tampa offense that's great. Pretty much their first and second line, their third line keeps it up. And even the fourth line, I'll say, has a chance. In my eyes, very early on, I mean, you just found about found out about the series last night. My money would be on Tampa, as I said, not only for the series but for the Stanley Cup. But I think this is going to be something where you can't overlook this Islanders team. You can't be surprised if they somehow pull off the upset and find their way into the Stanley Cup. But you got to remember, we have either the Avalanche at number one or the Golden Knights at number two from the West. From the North Division, you have the number four-seeded Montreal Canadiens. You got the second-seeded Tampa Bay Lightning and the fourth-seeded New York Islanders. That is what makes up the NHL's Final Four, bringing us one step closer to crowning a champion for the Stanley Cup. Now we dive into some off-season action, and I say off-season very lightly because the NFL, they're getting their OTAs, they're getting their minicamps going, and there are only a few little headlines. Obviously, Aaron Rodgers is something we could talk about every single week for skipping OTAs and stuff like that, but the off-season doesn't stop, especially from this past Sunday. The biggest trade of the off-season was made when Julio Jones became a Tennessee Titan. All Tennessee had to give up was a second round pick and then I believe a fourth or sixth round pick swap with the Falcons, I believe was what was given up just to get Julio Jones. Now, I would definitely call that a snag. I would call that a snag if I was Tennessee. Just giving up two picks for a guy who's been a seven-time Pro Bowler, I'd make that move any day of the week. Now, the question does become, with Julio Jones on this Tennessee team. Does that put Tennessee in Super Bowl contention? That is the subject of our weekly recurring segment known as Hot Takes. So you have to look first off at what Julio Jones did last year. Obviously, It was his least productive year since his rookie year, and then the year he was injured. I mean, 51 receptions, almost 800 yards, and three touchdowns in nine games. Nine games. It's only the third time in his 10 seasons that he posted a non-1,000-yard receiving season. Okay? And everyone will argue that, oh, he's 32. This is the usually the time where most wide receivers and most NFL players start to fall off a little bit. 
Let's push the pause button on that a little bit, and let's evaluate Julio Jones, regardless of if he's 32. He can be just as effective, just from his size. He already draws defenders. I mean, when you look at his last few years in Atlanta, you know, let's say past the Super Bowl team, past Super Bowl 51, defenders and defensive backs knew to double-team this man. Double-team this man. And even when he was getting the ball, he was carrying a bulk load. I mean, I think he had like a 200-yard game and like 13 receptions, I remember. I can't remember exactly when it was. But when you look at what that Atlanta offense had, there was really no other weapons that were game-changing besides Julio Jones. I mean, you could say Calvin Ridley from these past few years took a load off a little bit. But still, your go-to guy was Julio Jones, and he was just a workhorse. And I think he'll be that much better because he's basically got, it's almost like looking in a mirror, basically, on the other side of the field with A.J. Brown. It's basically like a 1A and a 1B instead of a 1 and a 2 wide receiver as your wide receiver options. I think that offense for the Titans just gets that much better. You top two of what I would call the top 20 wide receivers, maybe even top 15 in the entire league you top that with what I would say is the best running back in the game today in Derrick Henry that is a powerhouse offense absolutely powerhouse it makes you even forget that they lost John U. Smith in free agency at their tight end position makes you even forget about it but the big question for this Tennessee team is that Ryan Tannehill all right I just want to put out the disclaimer before I get into it Ryan Tannehill has established himself as a good quarterback, all right? Don't get me wrong. Since he's been to Tennessee, he's established himself as a good quarterback. I would put him in the top 15, top 15 of quarterbacks in the entire league, maybe even top 10. But can Tannehill take that next step to go to the elite level? Because when you have weapons like this, it's on you to get the best out of them. It really is. I mean... You think of a Tennessee team that loses Corey Davis, you pick up Julio Jones to replace him, you should be that much better on offense. Because that's what I think the problem was, one of the problems that Tennessee had in their wild card game last year against Baltimore, where they lost that game. Not only defensively, which we'll get into in a little bit, but Ryan Tannehill leaned too much on Derrick Henry. Okay, He has to become more of a playmaker. He's got to Use Julio Jones and A.J. Brown. They're deep threats. They're sideline workers. Is Ryan Tannehill going to be able to use that to his best advantage? That's going to be the question. Is he going to take that shot downfield for these deep threats? Is he going to be able to put it in the tight windows on the sidelines where we see Julio Jones making miraculous catches? That's going to be the difference. Because even if you that you have a bad game with them you can give it off to Derrick Henry if he can be taking the bulk on offense he's gonna have to make that next step all right is just moving the ball downfield putting the offense on his shoulders and marching them down the field that would be the only question offensively that I would have for this Tennessee team is is Ryan Tannehill going to be able to march this team down the field because we know in the past he's leaned on Derrick Henry. I mean, don't get me wrong, Derrick Henry, 2,000-yard rusher, but he basically looked sub-average, sub-average in that game against Baltimore. And if you're getting an elite seven-time Pro Bowler in 10 seasons in Julio Jones, pair that him with A.J. Brown on the other side, Ryan Tannehill should be able to make those throws. If he can make those throws, then you can be certain that this Titans team will be great. But are they great enough to be Super Bowl contenders? I'll tell you this right now that they should win the AFC South. With preseason predictions, they should win the AFC South. Because look at what else is going on in that division. The Houston Texans are an absolute mess with Deshaun Watson. Absolute mess. The Jacksonville Jaguars, they're not there yet. They're too young. They brought in a young guy in Trevor Lawrence, a young guy in Travis Etienne. 
They still got some young pieces. They're not there just yet. And the Colts, who were the other team who made the playoffs in that division, just made a huge quarterback change. Huge quarterback change. Phillip Rivers to Carson Wentz. You still have some questions about that. There are no questions surrounding this Tennessee team except defensively. Except defensively because they still need some work. They had problems limiting Lamar Jackson in that wild card game. And even though they signed Bud Dupree, you got to remember Bud Dupree is coming off a torn ACL that he suffered in week 12. In week 12. So that's about November, I would say. So you're asking from a guy who's only about eight or nine months off a torn ACL to lead your defense on the edge. And that that was really the only thing defensively that, that Tennessee needed was some edge guys to pressure the line of scrimmage, which I think Bud Dupree, when he's healthy, he can. But this is a guy who's coming off a torn ACL. So if you ask me, I still think they're behind the Chiefs, the Browns, and the Bills. I think they definitely win their division. They should win their division. But in terms of the Super Bowl, I I don't think they're there yet when we're talking preseason predictions. When we're talking in the preseason before games have even started, we haven't even started training camp yet. All right, Training camp is like just getting underway for a few teams. So as of this moment, I can't say I would put my money on Tennessee to be a huge Super Bowl contenders. I still think they're... You know, we'll we'll have to see what happens in the regular season. We'll have to see what happens in this 17-game season. If Tennessee does great in the field, then we can say they're Super Bowl contenders. But at this moment, I like Kansas City, I like Cleveland, and I like Buffalo over Tennessee right now. But, I mean, talk about a big upgrade. Getting Julio Jones on your team definitely puts Tennessee in a great spot heading into the 2021 NFL season. Up next, we turn to our Let's Get Local segment of the week. And boy, have there been some dark days for Boston playoff teams, especially last night with the Boston Bruins being eliminated by the New York Islanders in a decisive fashion. 6-2, to two, they dropped that game. And I talked about the New York side of things. Let's talk about the Boston side of things. Because, oh my goodness, they just felt totally outmatched. That really, really pretty much since game three, they were outmatched. I mean, they were on their heels and... Especially looking at that game last night. They barely could get any zone time offensively. Barely any zone time offensively. But I mean, I will say that part of it has to do with the Brandon Carlo injury. Obviously, he left in Game 3 and you could sort of feel that presence defensively because they struggled. You're asking Charlie McAvoy to do more. You're asking Matt Grizzlick to do more. Connor Clifton to do more. It's just, it just felt it was too much. It was too much. And not only that, but they were just too careless with the puck. Too careless with the puck. And you have to remember that, to me, that they always felt like they were playing from behind. Because remember, in Game 1 was really the only decisive game where you trusted that this Boston team could get out of this series. Head to Game 2. Down 3-1. Yes, you come back and force overtime. Then you have a terrible turnover evens the series up then game three in new york you get it in overtime off of what i would call a miracle shot by brad marshan in a very tough angle and barmalov basically just missing that puck then game four easy for new york game five easy for new york game six easy for new york they always were playing from behind really since game two because they were just too careless with the puck. And obviously, it just goes on sort of the lack of depth that they have. More so on the defensive end. Because we could even go back to free agency when Zidane Chara left. 
and Tory Krug left. You're asking a ton of young guys, a ton of young guys who are inexperienced to play on the second and third line and to give this team some depth. All right, because I think having that balance of Brandon Carlo, Charlie McAvoy was great on the first line. After the second line, you still have a couple of questions there. You still have a couple of questions. Carlo gets hurt, and then Camphor earlier on in the playoffs gets hurt. And then even last night when Charlie McAvoy takes that big hit, which should have been a penalty, but, you know, we know the referees being the getting called out from head coach Bruce Cassidy, McAvoy not being on the ice for a couple of minutes. That hurt as well. That hurt as well. So this team just has a lot of holes in terms of depth, more so on the defensive end, and that's what I think they have to focus on in this offseason. You know, there is a name out there who's been a former player. goes by the name of Dougie, Dougie Hamilton. I don't know if the Bruins would be willing to give him the kind of money he was he'd be looking for, but they just have to get better defensive help. But also in free agency, obviously the big name out there is Tuka Rask. Tuka Rask in net. And we know what he what's gone on the last two postseasons. I mean, you look at what happened in the bubble. He said he just wasn't feeling himself, so he left to go back home. And then in this playoffs, he was hurt. So the last two playoffs, he just hasn't looked like himself. When he's had a full, healthy postseason run, he gets his team to the Stanley Cup. Hence what happened the last time he was fully healthy two years ago in the Stanley Cup against the St. Louis Blues. But will they re-sign him? All signs to me would point to yes. Tuca likes Boston. I think Boston likes Tuca. And he just, you know, he hasn't looked like him old, his old self, but when you put him in the regular season, he's one of the more elite goaltenders out there in the entire league. But I got to say, it could be it could be a short-term deal. Because you have to look at what Jeremy Swayman has done for this past season. He played great. He played great. I think this upcoming season, he should be the backup goaltender. I think Yaroslav Halak, you got to remember, he's 41. He might be on his way out. And I think Swayman finds his way into that backup keeper's role. And who knows? He could even challenge Tuka Rask if... Tuka doesn't have a great start to the year. They might change things up, go to Jeremy Swayman, and find himself as the goalkeeper of the future. That's really the biggest question that this Bruins team have when it comes to free agency, is getting Tuka Rask back to his old self. But of course, the second big free agent is probably another top 10 free agent in the entire league, and that's Taylor Hall, the guy who the Bruins grabbed it at the trade deadline. And obviously, he's a huge benefactor. Huge benefactor on that second line. When you need depth, you go for a guy who basically showed sh- signs of brilliance. Signs of brilliance in the early stages of his career. And he sort of found that magic after coming to Boston. Now, I think, if you ask me, I would re-sign Taylor Hall. But the question is, again, that price tag. Is it going to be too high? Is another team going to offer him too much that the Bruins won't be able to match. You also got to remember that Taylor Hall said he loves playing in Boston. You know, as a fan, you love to hear that. It makes you think, oh, he definitely wants to come back. But the question is, what's that price tag going to be like? What is the price tag going to be like? And then lastly, obviously you have Mike Riley on defense, but you have to talk about David Krejci, okay? He's in his late 30s, in his mid-30s, you know, is he going to go for a short-term deal? Because remember, he's your second-line center, basically. Your second-line center on a team that doesn't have a ton of depth offensively. I mean, it's great to play with a guy like Taylor Hall, but you got to think, does he want to be a first-line center? Does he want to be a first-line center? Because he's been playing behind Patrice Bergeron for years. I think a guy like Krejci, he should be re-signed because he's your... He's basically your. He's been that veteran stable. He's been so stable for this Bruins team for years and years and years. And I would be very surprised to see him go somewhere else. But 
you know, it could be similar to a Zdeno Charles kind of thing. If he gets up there in age, does he commit long-term to this Bruins team? Does he finish out his career in the black and gold? That's the question for David Krejci. And, you know, the Bruins have a ton of questions regarding this offseason because it seems like year after year after year, they try to put together a team that plays great in the regular season, but they, they then they just fail the expectations when it comes time for the postseason. You know, especially the last two years, you think they have a great team with Marshawn and Bergeron and Pasternak, but then they just let you down if you're a fan. And who knows? I think the Bruins need to do a little bit of retooling, just a little bit of retooling. I think they got... A great perfection line. If they can get Tuka Rask, if they can get Taylor Hall, let's see what Taylor Hall does in a full season for the Bruins on that second line. Because clearly he played great in half a season and in the playoffs. But what will their values be? Will the Bruins be able to get them back? That'll be the biggest question. But, I mean, we're only talking one day after the Bruins got eliminated. But then again, the Celtics, after being eliminated, literally... A day after, they did a whole front office shakeup, and that gives us a good segue into what sources are saying is another big offseason story for a Boston team that might blow it up. The Celtics, according to some sources on a report from Bleacher Report, says the Celtics and Kemba Walker have mutually agreed to go their separate ways. They've agreed to move on, and it's all going back to last offseason in 2020 when Danny Ainge floated Kemba Walker as a piece for Drew Holiday. Obviously, Holiday went to Milwaukee, but Kemba was hurt when Danny Ainge in the front office decided to do that. And honestly, you know, it's not that shocking, at least from my vantage point, to see Kemba Walker possibly be moving on because it's pretty much another Gordon Hayward scenario. Is He's a great guy in the locker room, and he's great when he's healthy, but he just hasn't been healthy and hasn't been as productive that the Celtics were hoping for. And it's definitely going to hurt to to see him gone if he does move on before next season. Because Kemba Walker has to be one of the most joyous personalities in the NBA. You talk to one guy and they say nothing negative about Kemba Walker. But again, this is just a guy who had a ton of health problems since he signed with Boston. He's not that guy that he once was in Charlotte. The question is, though, who is going to take on that contract? Who is going to take on that contract? Because, you know, maybe you have to wonder, you know, we're not hearing it from Woj or anything like that. The relationship could be mended. It could be because you have to think Brad Stevens as a coach loves Kemba in the locker room and on the court, and now he's the team president, does that relationship get mended, or does Brad sort of take over Danny Ainge's role and basically continue what he started, what Danny Ainge started? Because that contract is definitely going to be tough to move. It's going to be tough to move, and he's got a bunch of health problems. Kemba's turning 31 this past May. I think his trade value is definitely going to be hurt if the Celtics do want to move him on, but they're going to have to throw a couple more pieces, possibly a couple more draft picks even, if they want to move on from Kemba Walker. But who's going to be your point guard, though? Do you trust Peyton Pritchard to be your point guard? You know, that that's a question that Brad Stevens is going to have to ask himself. But it's going to be tough not to see Kemba Walker in green if they do decide to move on and it has just been all around negative for Boston so far but if there's one piece of good news for any team in the city of Boston it's that the the Sox swept the Yankees for the first time in 10 seasons that's right this past weekend they went into Yankee Stadium took it to those fans and said hey you don't like us we don't like you let's sweep you and the rivalry you know, with the AL East being so tight, this rivalry could be restarted. And we could start to see a little bit more fight between the Red Sox and the Yankees, especially after what Brett Gardner said. I mean, Brett Gardner, he's been around the block a few times. You know, he knows about this rivalry. 
And he came out and said, we don't like them, they don't like us, especially since Alex Cora is back in that dugout. So Xander Bogart said that quote was used as some inspiration. And I say, why not? I say, why not? Use any kind of motivation to beat this team. Let's see that rivalry because a Red Sox-Yankees rivalry is good for baseball. It is good for the entire league to see the Red Sox and the Yankees at each other's throats. Why do you think so many people talk about the mid-2000s? Why do you think so many people talk about 1986, 1976, the Babe Ruth selling, okay? This is good for baseball if we see that Sox-Yanks rivalry renewed. Now, obviously, it does get put in the rearview mirror because the Sox have a series with the Houston Astros. And again, like I said, Houston is humbling the Sox, showing them that they are not there just yet. They're not there yet in terms of being World Series contenders. But Sox fans can take good joy knowing that their bitter rival were swept by the Red Sox. I mean, to me, that feels good. To me, that feels so good to see the Red Sox sweep the Yankees. But hopefully the Sox, you know, they're the only team playing right now. Both the Bruins and the Celtics are eliminated. The Patriots still have season. They got their mini camp to go. And it's going to be just a few more months until we see them back in action. But for right now, all hope lies on the Boston Red Sox because they are the only team playing in the city of Boston. As always, to end our show, we look at our LOL moment of the week. And this week's moment actually happened just a few days ago, not too long ago. And it has to do with a player who maybe thought something was right and wrong and showed how right it is in the most funny way possible. So this week's LOL moment of the week goes to... Nick Castellanos, the outfielder for the Cincinnati Reds. So let me paint the picture, set the scene for you. This was last Tuesday during the bottom of the first in their series at home against the Brewers. All right. The count is very close. It's 3-2. And Castellanos takes a pitch that appears to be in down low. It appears to be down low. Definitely a ball. But... Umpire Will Little calls it strike three. And Castellanos can't believe it. He's like, what? Are you kidding me? And so what does he do? He takes off all his gear and runs down to first base like it's a walk. And right when he gets the first base, he makes a right turn and heads into the dugout. Now, some will call it petty by Castellanos. But I call it, that's a way you show up an umpire. That's a way you show them up without being ejected. Because that is the basically the golden rule if you're an MLB umpire. If you show me up, you are going to get tossed. That's why when you see guys like drawing a line or pointing out where the ball was, that would be subject to an ejection right there. And you got to also keep in mind, it is very hard to get ejected in today's MLB. You know, with instant replay and all that. There's not many things you can argue about. The only thing you can argue about are balls and strikes. And so maybe if Castellanos didn't take that route, he would have been ejected. Of course, it would have been early on, but that is perfect. You act like it's a walk. You run away from the situation, but you also show him, hey, I'm running here to first base, which is where I should be. But I'm going to take your route and head to the dugout. That is perfect by Castellanos. He's now one of my favorite players. (laughs) Obviously, Obviously, Castellanos thought it was a ball, and he just runs to first like it is a ball. You know, I initially thought at first, you know, looking at the description, because I was seeing this online on social media, I just thought, oh, he he thought it was he thought it was ball four, but it turned out to be strike three, and maybe it was just a, a quiet call by the umpire. But when you look at the video, you see strike three, you see Castellanos turn his head back, and then he takes off his gear heads down to first base. I mean, that that is 
funny. That is very funny. And who knows? It could just be frustration for Cassianos for a team that started 6-1 and one and now are barely scraping 500 right now. I mean, that that's what it could be. It could be a little bit of frustration there too. But I will say Cincinnati has won five of the last six. But you got to remember, it's a central division with the Brewers, the Cubs, and the Cardinals in it. All right. The Brewers, Cardinals, and the Cubs. But, I mean, if anyone was going to show up an umpire without getting tossed, that's how you do it. That's how you do it. And you also got to remember Castellanos. He was a big trade target not too long ago. I believe he did get traded to the Cubs, and then he wound up signing with Cincinnati. So now he's become one of Cincinnati's best hitters outside of maybe Joey Votto or Dietrich. You know, I'm probably missing one other guy, but you got to remember, this is a Central Division team that's in the same division as the Brewers, the Cubs, and the Cardinals. Teams who I thought at the beginning of the year were going to be much better than them. Much better. So, Nick Castellanos, I applaud you for taking the high route while also giving something baseball fans can laugh at. By taking a walk on a strikeout, you have earned your way into this week's LOL Moment of the Week. So that will do it for this edition of Let Me Speak. Thank you very much for watching and for listening. Make sure you're dropping those likes, those comments, and make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just search let me speak podcast and remember as always if you've got a point you got to get across just tell the whole world shut up and let me speak